before we open up our discussion for questions, there's one more point that I want to add. I mentioned that uh, in Tibetan and Sanskrit, the same word is used for imputation, mental labeling, and designation. And when I explain the difference among these uh, three, that uh, imputation is uh, nobody has to impute it. It's not uh, uh, done by something. It is a, a fact. Whereas uh, mental labeling and designation occur in uh, conceptual cognition. So somebody has to, I mean, you have to mentally label it a category or, or designate with a word something. Uh, this uh, differentiation is done in consideration of, or you know, in the flavor of what we find in Sautrantika. Uh, consideration of? Making that distinction is made uh, primarily from the point of view of Sautrantika, where we differentiate between objective phenomenon and metaphysical phenomenon. Objective phenomenon you can see, metaphysical only occurs in uh, conceptual thought. But uh, <coughs> you remember that uh, Prasangika was saying that uh, everything, all phenomenon, are imputedly knowable, which means that uh, first we uh, perceive the uh, basis for imputation, and then we, you know, although the basis and the imputation appear simultaneously, first we pay attention to the basis, and then the next moment you pay attention to both the basis and what, and the imputation. Nevertheless, Prasangika says that everything is an imputation on a basis for imputation. So that means that uh, uh, a category can only exist on, uh, how do I say this? You can't have a category without items in a category, even if there's, it's a null set you know, with no items in it like the category of truly established existence. Remember, we had uh, in Trinamatra, <clears throat> thoroughly, uh, totally conceptual uh, phenomenon would also include non-existent phenomenon. So you could, you know, imagine, uh, think in terms of truly established existence, and you would have something that you imagine is what it is, but there is nothing that actually, uh, there is no such thing as truly established existence. You know, you could have that category unicorn. There are no unicorns that fit into that category, but you could represent it by a mm -hmm. mental picture of a horse with a horn on his head. So you can't have, we use mathematical terms, a set without members of the set. You can't have a category without uh, items that fit into the category. So a category is an imputation on items that fit into it. And you can't have a word without, it, without there being a meaning, which is the basis of the word. Otherwise, it's just a, a sound of a, it's just a sound. So a word is an imputation on a meaning. 
something or an object that it signifies. So it's the same type of relationship as we were describing that uh, you can't have a person without five aggregates as a basis. There can't be impermanence without something that is changing. There can't be aging without something that's aging. There can't be voidness unless it's a voidness of something. So all of these are implications. That is not uh, optional. All of these are, are facts. That's why the same word is used for all of these. Other, otherwise, it's not the same word? As no, this is why it's the same word. The same word as for all of them. labeling and... The relationship between what we were calling an implication and the basis for implication and the relationship between uh, mental labeling and a basis for labeling and a designation and a basis for designation, that relationship the is same. the same. Mm. It's the same as, the as the what we described as the relationship of, a, of an implication and a basis for implication. Imputation. Of imputation, I'm sorry. So it's not optional that if you have a mental label, there needs <clears throat> to be a basis for labeling. What's optional is whether we use that to understand some phenomenon that we see. The same thing. A word and the meaning of a word, well, that's not optional. If there's a word, there's a meaning of a word. But what is optional is whether we apply that to some object and give it a name. Okay? So these are very delicate uh, differences here. And uh, unless one analyzes it very carefully, uh, it can be quite uh, misleading. We, we can be quite misled by our misunderstanding not so much by our misunderstanding, but by our not going deeply enough in our understanding. Right? That's one of the bodhisattva vows, you know, never be satisfied with your level of understanding. You can always understand more deeply so you become a Buddha, or more extensively, mm. or more extensively, either more deeply or more mm. extensively. An Arya understands voidness correctly, but it can be understood its implications more extensively. Okay. So now questions. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned there is one Tibetan word for the three. Yeah. What is this Tibetan word? Dokbe Dakpatsam. Dokbe Dakpatsam. Mingi Dakpa. Dokba Dakpa or Mingi Dakpa. If uh, those who are enlightenment, enlightened uh, can uh, cognize or understand the reality directly, um, then why there are different interpretations? Okay, uh, you're saying Buddhas. Did you say Buddhas? Yes. 
the enlightened ones, whether they're Buddhist or well, an enlightened one, the Buddha, is uh, someone who understands. Well, an Arya understands uh, everything. Non uh, understands. No, I don't, don't translate yet. Don't translate yet. Let me formulate it uh, clearly. All Buddhas have the same understanding. So they have uh, um, omniscient awareness, right? I will not go into the explanation of seeing the two truths simultaneously because that will take an hour to explain. Uh, there is a bit of, uh, what shall we say? I think there's no real kind way of saying it, but there is sectarianism here, which is that uh, every tradition will say that uh, uh, a Buddha understands according to their tradition and that their tradition is the one that goes the deepest, that the others maybe have uh, refuted something, but they either have, uh, as Tsongkhapa puts it, either uh, under-refuted or over-refuted. They've refuted too much or they've refuted too little. And then you bring in Tantra, Nutriyoga Tantra, and even in Galukpa they will say that uh, uh, you can't really achieve enlightenment unless you've used a Nutri Yoga Tantra and gotten to the clear light level. And Dzogchen will say, agree that you can't get you know, enlightenment just with the Sutra uh, level, that you have to get to Rikpa, you know, as explained in Dzogchen. So who knows? Who can say except the Buddha? Is the, unfortunately, it's a cheap way of getting out of the argument. <laughs> but uh, what His Holiness has uh, spoken about uh, in the past, and mind you, I have not heard everything that His Holiness explains. His Holiness explains all the time. But one of the things that he was uh, talking about many years ago was a uh, unified theory, you know, like in physics, you know, the unified field theory, that uh, each of the different uh, traditions and here he wasn't speaking so much about uh, the uh, Indian tenant systems. I think everybody agrees that uh, Madhyamaka is the summit. It's just how you understand Madhyamaka. But uh, citing the first pension lamas, or the fourth pension lama, however you want to count them, uh, work on the root text on Mahamudra, that uh, each of these traditions, whether it's Dzogchen or Kargyu or uh, Galupa or whatever, he lists a whole bunch of them, they all, you know, a, an experienced yogi following any of them will come to the same conclusion. So this is a unified theory of all of them. And each of them explained from a slightly different point of view and a slightly different way of meditating. And some were more skilled in explaining what they were doing and what they experienced than others. You know, some explain in very poetical type of ways, like the Dohas, and some explain in uh, very analytical type of ways, like Tsongkhapa. At least from the point of view of the Tibetan tradition, everybody will agree that uh, the Indian tenant systems are progressively more and more, uh, go deeper and deeper and are more sophisticated, and that Madhyamaka, whatever the way they understand Madhyamaka, is the deepest. And that that's what a Buddha would have to understand. 
what becomes more challenging is to integrate as well the uh, views that you find in uh, the various uh, um, Theravada schools and the various uh, Chinese, and Japanese, and Korean schools, and so on. That becomes uh, uh, very difficult because the, their way of explaining is really very, very different. You know, the way that things are described in Zen are very different from how they're described in uh, any of the Tibetan traditions. Yeah. Uh, so, if I understood correctly, according to Prasangika, uh, our conceptual thinking only implies that we are operating uh, mental labels, names, words, concepts, but how it can help us to get to the real understanding, non-conceptual understanding of uh, uh, voidness. It is probably impossible to go from no understanding to a non-conceptual understanding of voidness. We need to build up the causes to be able to get that non-conceptual cognition. So what are the causes? Building up the so-called two collections, the network of positive force and deep awareness merit and wisdom. How do we build up that uh, network of deep awareness, of voidness, a so-called collection of wisdom? We have to hear the words that uh, explain it, and to understand and think about them, we have to put them into categories of conceptual thought. The words mean something. How do we, how do we you know, understand the meaning? It has to be through conceptual thought. Then we have to familiarize ourselves with that conceptual uh, Cognition, in other words, whatever we're experiencing, fitting it into that category. Oh yeah, that's voidness. Once we have become decisive, what that category means is accurate. But for that uh, conceptual cognition of voidness to have enough strength to be able to uh, break through the obscurations, it has to have with it the uh, buildup of positive force, the network of positive force, the so-called collection of merit, and that uh, buildup has to be dedicated with bodhicitta. Otherwise, it just contributes to a good, a nice samsara that you become a professor and can explain about it. And bodhicitta is focused on basically dharmakaya, that our own attain, our own dharmakaya, our own attainment of dharmakaya, you know, the omniscient mind of a Buddha, that has not yet happened, but which can happen on the basis of our, this buildup of, of positive force and deep awareness. So that can only be conceptual. Mm. Bodhicitta is conceptual until you're a Buddha. And only, I mean, even compassion is only, uh, conceptual until you're a Buddha. Why? Because compassion is aimed at all sentient beings. May they all be free of suffering. Well, only a Buddha can cognize all sentient beings. We can't. We can only imagine it. 
So it's conceptual. And uh, when we uh, generate bodhicitta, initially we're going to have to go through a line of reasoning. You know, all beings have been my mother, you know, everybody is equal, and, and etc. So that's called labored bodhicitta. So these two networks, if we don't dedicate them, they just contribute to nice samsara, better rebirth. So they only contribute to liberation or to enlightenment if we dedicate them toward liberation and enlightenment. So if our <laughs> bodhicitta is still labored, then it only is what's called a facsimile uh, network. It's like the actual network that will contribute to enlightenment. But it's not the real one, the actual one. But it, it helps. And when it, uh, our bodhicitta becomes unlabored, which means you don't have to go through that whole line of reasoning, you just have it instantly, that is the demarcation, the point where we actually achieve what's usually called as the path of accumulation. That's the first of the five paths. Well, these are actually pathways of mind. They're a way of thinking, way, a way of, of, of knowing things, of being aware of things. And a path of accumulation, I find a much better way of translating it, is a building up pathway of mind. What are we building up? We are building up shamatha and vipassana focused on voidness, not but conceptually. And when we have combined, joined shamatha and vipassana, Focus conceptually on voidness with the force of this labored bodhicitta, then you get the second path, which is called the path of preparation. But actually, it's the path, it's a pathway mind of, of applying. You are applying now that joined shamatha and vipassana over and over again. And by the force of that, the positive force that's built up from that, you achieve non-conceptual cognition, the seeing pathway of mind. That buildup of positive force that's required to achieve, to break through, you know, conceptual thought, to get to non-conceptual, that has to be built up. That's the first of the three countless eons of building up positive force. And there's still two more countless eons to go before you're enlightened. So that is how it is explained in Sutra. And even if we explain in terms of voidness beyond words, beyond concepts, this uh, non-galupa way of explaining, you can't have something beyond words and concepts unless you had before that were through words and concepts. Beyond words and concepts is an implication on with words and concepts. Come on. Okay. Uh, so the question is, maybe it's about kind of a, a solution how to try to uh, just, just transcend the second, um, like to go through the second uh, path, the preparation or application pathway might quicker than in one uh, incalculable eon. Uh, and the story behind is that I go to different uh, Buddhist centers and uh, try to study with different teachers and um, maybe I don't know that much about different schools and approaches and uh, uh, the history of the schools, but I try to concentrate on the meaning, try to understand what is voidness, what is dependent arising, and so on, how it is taught by different schools. 
but what I often face is that people tell me, oh, you don't go there, don't go to this school. This is not our teachers, this is not our voidness. And uh, this is the kind of approach I often um, face. Instead of that, my proposal is that maybe it might be uh, more beneficial for different Buddhist groups and traditions to come together and to discuss their way of understanding of voidness. Um, and maybe if they do, uh, they will be able to get non-conceptual understanding in a faster way than in one incalculable eon. <laughs> First of all, where is the, we have to be clear, the start of the first countless eon. <laughs> Remember, we have beginningless time in uh, Buddhism. <laughs> so there has to be a start of you know, how you count a countless eon. <laughs> Pardon the difficulty of the way of saying that. Remember, before that unlabored bodhicitta, it's just a facsimile, it's just similar, not the real thing. So the first countless eon is the amount of positive force you have to build up to go from when you have unlabored bodhicitta and a correct uh, conceptual cognition of voidness. From that point until you build up shamatha, you might have had shamatha before that, but shamatha focused on that and joined with uh, uh, Vipassana and you know, really worked on it until it becomes non-conceptual. That period of time, from the start of the first path till the start of the third path, is the first countless eon. So the problem is not uh, how do you get the correct understanding of conceptual understanding of voidness by listening, thinking, and meditating. You know, everybody has their own, each of the traditions will have their own style of doing that. Tibetan traditions. You know, that all, and all of them are based on the Indian texts. I mean, they just have their own commentaries to them. But, so discussing their own way of presenting voidness is not going to affect that it still will take, once you get labored bodhicitta and once you get the accurate and decisive conceptual cognition of voidness, that you're still going to need to work with it to get shamatha and vipassana on that and to really work for an awful long time with that. You still have to build up a tremendous amount of positive force. And using the sutra methods, that will take one countless eons. If you use uh, Anutra Yoga Tantra methods, then uh, you have more efficient methods for building up that amount of positive force. So it doesn't take so long. But we will not go into a discussion of Tantra here. Yeah. So you still have to meditate a hell of a lot, no matter what. There's no cheap way around it. There are no bargains. Uh, so the question is on one of those two articles that uh, we sent out first uh, on uh, illusion, on the example of illusion according to the four schools. Uh, there is a list um, in terms of what is like an illusion and what is literally an illusion and what is existent and what is non-existent. So the first item in, in the list says uh, that uh, a relative or conventional me is like an illusion and it is existent. Then the second point says that 
the appearance of false or impossible existence is illusion, but it's still existent. The question is, how is it existent if it is an illusion? It's uh, something that represents the uh, non-existent phenomenon uh, is what appears in the, uh, in the cognition of uh, a non-existent phenomenon because uh, a non-existent phenomenon can't actually arise in cognition. So you represent it by something. That representation exists. Right? There was one thing I wanted to add to the uh, previous uh, answer, I mean, to the previous question. We tend to think, or some people tend to think, that uh, uh, in terms of all or nothing, you know, you only get rid of problems if you have non-conceptual cognition of voidness, and if it's not non-conceptual, it's useless. That oh. is incorrect. All along the path, you know, as our understanding goes deeper, as our positive force goes deeper, any of the meditation, any of the understanding is going to be helpful. It's not that it's not helpful. It's not that it doesn't have an effect. Remember, cause and effect, no matter what we do, is going to have an effect. Of course, if you have an incorrect understanding, it could be damaging. But if you have a correct understanding, the correct motivation, it's definitely going to have a beneficial effect. Even if it's conceptual, it doesn't matter. It's not going to have the full effect of uh, getting rid of, you know, first you get rid of the doctrinally-based uh, ignorance and disturbing emotions. It's not going to have that full effect, but it will have some effect. It will be helpful all along the path. Any other questions? Yeah. Last question. Uh, so the question is about imputation and the basis for imputation. Because you mentioned that it is a factual uh, and it's something that happens uh, in a sense by itself automatically. We don't have to do it. Um, and for instance, with these flowers, I look at this thing uh, I have, at the same time, I already see what is imputed on that uh, basis. Then, of course, I have the categories of uh, flowers and I can consider them uh, beautiful, ugly, or, and so on. Um, I More or less, I understand how to work on this uh, level of mental labeling and uh, designation because I can, at least, I can observe how my mind gives uh, categories, what kind of categories it gives and what happens because of that. But if imputation is something that happens without basically, uh, you know, it happens automatically uh, by itself and it's factual, then what can I do with that? How can I work with that? And can I? And if yes, then how? First of all, what uh, we're speaking about when we speak about uh, imputation and basis of imputation just being factual, uh, I think in terms of these objects here, that uh, uh, we can understand it uh, um, more easily in terms of whole and parts. Uh, you don't have to, you know, conceptually manufacture that it's a whole object based on the parts. It is a whole object. So 
let's transpose this to a situation in our life. There's a situation at uh, work that uh, has many parts because there are many different uh, employees involved and uh, each of them are doing different things every day and uh, uh, for various causes, personal causes from their own personal lives as well as causes uh, in the office situation and uh, a hole on all these parts. Well, that's an, that's an imputation. There, there is a hole. They fit together. Whether we call it a situation, whether we call it a problem, well, that's optional. That's with mental labeling and words. So that's categories and words. And although we can deconstruct it and we can see all the different parts and different causes and we know that uh, we need to uh, uh, change certain things, nevertheless, in order to um, formulate a strategy that is going to take care of uh, uh, the whole situation, we need to uh, understand that there is a situation. You know, conventionally, there's a situation, and there are all these parts. And so to deal with the, with the, with the situation as a whole, we have to deal with the parts. I think that's the main application, that uh, to deal with a whole, you have to deal with the parts. Right? Okay, so we will take our 15-minute break, and then we will continue.